You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're beginning a new study of the book of Ruth. We're calling A Return to Joy. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So Robert McKee is one of those names that you probably don't recognize, but you certainly have been uh, touched by his work and the investment of his life. He is a, an acclaimed, maybe the most actually, screenwriter professor out there. He has his PhD in cinema arts. Uh, he has worked at the University of Southern California in their fil- film school for years and years and years. And his students have gone on to write countless and produce uh, and direct a number of movies that you would know that have won Oscar awards. I mean, he's been incredibly successful in that line of work. He's got a book where he sought to capture it because he became so uh, renowned for teaching people how to tell stories that he started doing seminars and traveling around and talking about that. And he wrote a book uh, with a really compelling title, which is Story, Substance, Structure, Style, and the Principles of Screenwriting, which probably means all of you are going to want to run out and get that book today because it's a compelling title. In an interview, he was asked this question, what is a story? Now, I would tell you that right off the bat, every one of us in this room could come up with a definition of what a story is, and we would have more or less some things in common. I don't know if any of us would have as full of a definition as somebody who was trained in this sort of thing. Here was his answer. Essentially, a story expresses how and why life changes. It begins with a situation in life that is relatively in balance. You come to work day after day, week after week, and everything is fine. You expect that it will just go on that way, but then there's an event. In screenwriting, we call it the inciting incident that throws life out of balance. You get a new job, or the boss dies of a heart attack, or a big customer threatens to leave. The story goes on to describe how in the effort to restore balance, now I want to call attention to that, there was balance and then something happened and now the quest is to restore balance, right? We just want to go back to the way that it was. The protagonist's subjective expectations, the protagonist has some things that he or she believes should be happening and they're not. They're subjective They're all within that person's mind. They crash into uncooperative objective realities. What I want to have happen is crashing in to things that will not cooperate with me, right? Everybody with me? Everybody in story now? A good storyteller describes what it's like to deal with those opposing forces, our subjective expectations crashing into an uncooperative objective reality. And when that happens, it calls on the protagonist to dig deeper, to work with scarce resources, to make difficult decisions, to take actions despite the risks, and to ultimately discover the truth. Now, I think all of us could come up with a definition of story. I'm not sure any of us could have come up with that one. But we all know exactly what he's saying. We've all been there when life has that happen, is that we've got something going on in our life. It feels like everything's in balance. Everything's just going okay. And then something happens. There's that moment that seems to really knock you for a loop, right? And then you're like, how do I get back? 
Because our quest is to go back. Our quest isn't to go forward. We just want to go back. Just give me what's going on. Let me go back. So a friend of mine who's a counselor taught our family this word years ago. We were talking about trauma. And I don't know if you feel like you've had excessive trauma in your life. Maybe you're a minimizer and you're like, "Eh, I mean, I've had some tough stuff, but I don't know that I'd call it trauma. And so this counselor taught our family the phrase is that you could have a capital T trauma or a lowercase t trauma. But what we all have in common is this. We've all faced trauma in our life. We've all had that moment where something was going, we thought things were in balance, we had an inciting incident that that punched us in the face, and then we were left trying to figure out how do we move forward. And part of what happens in those moments, I think if we're being honest, and I recognize this is not a very Sunday school answer what I'm about to say, but I think we find ourselves in those moments saying, God, you're a pretty good God. You're not a great God. If you were a great God, you wouldn't have let that happen but you're a pretty good God. Matter of fact, you may be the best thing going, so I'm all in with you, but I can't quite go so far as to say you're great because this life has just too many pains in it. There's too many little T traumas. There's too many capital T traumas wherever you would put yourself on that. So the question is, how do we move into that? We've called this, this series about the book of Ruth. We've talked about it is the, this hard journey from bitterness to contentment, a return to joy, So we're going to study the book of Ruth over the next several weeks. I invite you to turn there in your copy of Scripture to Ruth 1.1, which is obviously where we will begin. If you want to use a hard copy of Scripture, feel free. Uh, If you don't have a hard copy of Scripture, we've got some available uh, on carts in the back of the room. If you want to use a digital copy or use use the Use Version app, uh, whatever is comfortable for you, uh, feel free to turn there. But as we come into this, Ruth is a significant character in this book. And so I don't want to diminish her. But I think if we miss the idea is that there is another crucial character in this book. Her name is Naomi. And we're about to be introduced to these characters here in a minute. But when we talk about Naomi, as we watch Naomi really be the one to take this journey from bitterness to contentment, it's really focused on her story. But it comes through the role of how God uses Ruth in her life. And so we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and I invite you to follow along with me. So we read these first two verses. He's, Ruth, we're going to get some context of what's going on. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two children. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Let's stop for a second because we've got a lot of context there that we need to talk through to see what's going on. We found ourselves in a situation where they had their life in balance. It's a, a husband and a wife and they've got their two sons. And then they had this inciting incident. A famine came into the land and we, we can try to figure out what the famine was. God has everything at his disposal. I I think it would be reasonable to say is that the famine had something to do with the sin that was going on in the country. See, God had said, I'm going to be your provider. I'm going to be the one you look to. And we have this verse. We come straight from the book of Judges into Ruth. Four times in the book of Judges, we read that there was no king. Nobody's calling the shots in the land in that day. Two of those places, we do come across this verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. 
And so if there's no king, there's nobody setting policy. It's a dark time in Israel. People have found themselves looking to do what's right. If you would allow me to contextualize this, this sounds a whole lot like what we see going into our world where we talk about, well, this is my truth. This is my truth. You have your truth. Truth is no longer objective. It is subjective based on the individual where everybody is doing what's right according to their own truth. See, we're not immune to this in our day and age either. And what happened was we find ourselves in this period of time where it's a dark time. There's some bright spots going on, but it's an incredibly dark time in the life of God's people. And there's a famine that comes in. And you've got a couple of options. You can say, no, the Lord has called us here. This is what the Lord had promised for us. We're going to stay here. And I don't know how he's going to provide, but he said he would provide. And so we trust in him. Or you can make the decision that says, I'm going to figure out what's right in my own eyes, and I will go make it happen. So here we have a mom and a dad and two boys, and they decide what we need to do is we need to go to Moab. And in case you're not familiar with all the maps in your Bible, here is where Moab is versus Bethlehem. It's about 50 miles east of Bethlehem, as you can see, I mean, yeah, it's closer than Decatur, but they don't have cars to load up. This is a commitment. You got to go across and through mountain ranges and passes. You got to go around a body of water. So you're got to be all in if you say, this is what I'm going to do. And so they all get on the path and they decide to head over to, uh, to Moab. Now, another thing about Moab is they were not a God-fearing country. They did not worship the same God that the Israelites would have worshiped. They worshiped a God named Chemosh. Now, Chemosh was an angry God. He was a militaristic God. He was one that you feared. You lived in fear of him. And sure, we found out about them, but we've got this mom and dad that were from Bethlehem. If you remember from when we talk about the... uh, the prophecies regarding Messiah is he's kind of come from Beth, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. These are Ephrathites. And so that's where they came from, is they're going to get up and they're going to leave that place where God was in their midst and travel to another country that had a foreign God and live there looking for provision. See how the story is getting a little bit more interesting. And when we come to this and we look at their names, I want to call attention to this because their names are significant. One is they're Ephrathites. So they are like local royalty. Everybody knows these people. And then you got a husband and a wife. You have Elimelech. His name actually means my God is king. Naomi's name means pleasant or joyful. And you think, well, those are good names. Now, if you've ever named something or a pet or an animal or a child or something, then you probably thought long and hard, what's a good name? What's a name that conveys strength or character or power or something that I would want to infuse into the identity of this child? And whatever you came up with, it had to be better than the names that Naomi and Elimelech came up for their boys. Because these boys were saddled with rough names. You see that name Mal in there? It means frail. Chilion's name means weak. Can you imagine saying, okay, you, my son, you're frail. You, my son, you're weak. Go live life. And that's their name. All right, so we got the picture. 
We've got a family of four. We've got a husband and wife. We've got two boys. They, everything's going well. Life's in balance. They're managing it okay. Famine comes into the land. Off they go. They travel to a foreign land. They did what was right in their own eyes. They go into a land that worships a false god, one that you have to be afraid of, and they go to find a way to make life work. I mean, how can it be bad, right? Well, let's follow the story. Look down with me, if you would, at verse uh, 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left with her two sons, without her two sons and her husband. Life hits pretty hard. Can you imagine? I mean, we're talking capital T trauma. This isn't lower T. This is capital T trauma. Here is Naomi. I just want to put food on my table for my family. That's all I'm after. I just want my life to work. I want it to be in balance. So up they go. And they go and move. And they travel. And it's a commitment. And they're living in a foreign land. And her husband dies. Tragic. Tragic. Heartbreaking. Soul-wrenching. All of those words. She finds herself there. But you know what? She's got her two boys. And it's me and the two boys, and we're going to make it work. So there'll be a way to work. There'll be a way to have provision. There'll be a way to care for. I'll feel protected. I'll be provided for. It's going to be okay. I'm going to tell you this. I, I, I think that this is significant. In these verses is the only place in Hebrew Bible where we see the word sons used in reference to grown married men. Now, I'm just going to ask you to think with me about connecting a few dots. If you've ever known a woman who had her two boys and did not want them to grow up and become men, as you can imagine that we've got this mother and she's got her two boys. I've lost my husband. That hurts. It's terrible. But you know what? I've got my two boys and the three of us, we're going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, see what was the next thing that happened? They took on Moabite wives. Well, now she's competing. She's got competition. Now, i got to say is that the Israelites were told not to marry Canaanites. Do not marry Canaanites. And it didn't say not to marry Moabites, but the principle was this. You marry somebody that worships another god, a false god, and you invite that under your roof, then you are going to find yourself challenged and constantly at odds, and it's going to become to infiltrate the way you live and the way you think. And while they were not expressly told not to marry Moabites, they... He, these two boys did marry two women that worshiped a God that was this militaristic, angry God to be afraid of. It's hard for that person to influence you in positive ways. But Naomi says, okay, well, all right, so we're going to have these two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and it's going to be okay. And then life hits again. We have two more capital T traumas, loss of one son, loss of a second son. 10 years of life like this. Now, if you think with me, originally there was the original four, mom, dad, son, son. There was the original four, and they leave Bethlehem because it's like, we can't live here. We need food. We can't live here, which means we have to move. So we do what's right in our own eyes, and we take our four because we can't live here to go live here. And when we go live here, what we find out is three of the four pass away. 
See how dark this story continues to get? And if you've ever faced trauma, you know what it feels like. When it feels like just one blow after another, it just keeps coming. And you can't even get your legs under you to say, give me a chance to catch my breath. And now her two sons are gone. That we don't ever see them as married adult men. They're still her sons. And now they're gone. And Naomi looks up and it's like, I've lost my husband. I've lost my two boys. And you know what I have? I have two daughters-in-law. Okay, didn't particularly ask for daughters-in-law, but I've got two daughters-in-law, and they're in tow with me now. They're part of our family. I, don't, I didn't necessarily ask for this, but I don't know what to do in this situation. If you're Naomi, what, how do I move forward? How do I move forward? What does it look like for me to figure out how to make life work from now on? I feel like Isaiah captures something for us. I've shared these verses before. Isaiah chapter 50, when Isaiah writes, says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? We find ourselves there. These are people that love the Lord. This is a person in obedience. This isn't a, a carnal Christian. This isn't a backsliding Christian. This isn't a cold-hearted Christian. This is somebody who's walking with the Lord, right? And then we read this. Let him, the person who is that, who walks in darkness, and we have to allow ourselves to think, wait a minute, how many of us will allow ourselves to realize that the spiritual life can be filled with darkness, not because of sin, just because this world is dark and is broken? See, if our theology doesn't allow us to say that the normal Christian experience allows for darkness, even when we're walking with the Lord in obedience, then I think we're missing something. Isaiah wants to teach us something. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now, I got to tell you, I wasn't Elimelech and Naomi. I don't know what it would have been like, but I know this. The Lord said he would provide, and the circumstances were that it didn't look like he was providing, but that doesn't mean God isn't going to provide. And so rather than leaning into the darkness and saying, Lord, I choose to be in the darkness with you rather than be in the light that I have to light. Isaiah said it this way, behold, all of you who kindle a fire, why would you kindle a fire? Because it's dark and I don't like the dark and it's scary when it's dark. So if you go light your own fire, you equip yourself with a burning torch, the Lord says, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. I'm not gonna blow them out. If you go light your own light, I'm gonna let you have your own light. And what you're choosing is you're choosing light apart from me rather than in the dark with me. And here's what's going to happen. This is what you're going to have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Because the idea is what I need most in this world is light. And so let me have light. And what the Lord wants to say is, no, there's something far better than being in the light. It's being with me, even if it's in the darkness. Because if the light takes you away from me, stay with me in the darkness. And Naomi and Elimelech said, you know what? I don't like this darkness, so I'm going to go. And that started a series of bad decisions, bad things that were happening in their life that they were facing. It's a tough place. Here's Naomi. They left us four. They were down to one, but they added two daughters-in-law. So let's pick up our story. Look with me, if you would, at verse six. It's been 10 years in this situation. And we come to this. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Ten years have passed. It's time to go home. It's time to go back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem translates into house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. And the idea is, is while she's in Moab, see, God's renown is always spreading. She's in a foreign land that doesn't worship Yahweh, but in the fields of Moab, she hears, hey, Yahweh has returned and there's bread. The house of bread is full of bread again. And Naomi knows that that means that God brought the rain. She knows that that means that God brought the produce and the harvest. She knows all those things. And she says, it's time to go home. You've been living in Moab I think there's something there for us. You know, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I think the idea is that we are all born in our Moabs, right? We're all born distanced and separated and alienated from God. And the invitation for each one of us is to come home to the house of bread that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you're here this morning and you say, I only know life with angry militaristic gods, the invitation is for you to come home to come home into this relationship with the Lord, that he loves you, he cares for you, he's made it possible through Jesus Christ on the cross, his death and resurrection to offer you and I eternal life. The invitation is to come home, which is what she sees after 10 years of being there. So she picks everything up and she's like, it's time to go home. They went as four. There's three graves in Moab. I think she's upset. I think she's bittered. I think the world has taken its toll on her. And she says, it's time to go home. And the daughters-in-law say, okay. Did you catch what she said? No. I don't want you to go. I want you to go back to your mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, we've talked about this word before. It gets translated kindness. It's that Hebrew word hesed uh, in the way that it communicates God's loving care for people. It can be translated kindness. It can be translated loving kindness and condescending to the needs of his creature. It really carries this idea is that God not only sees where we are, but then he like leans down low to say, let me join you in your struggle. I'm for you, and I don't want to be this distant God that is so separated from you. So he condescends, he leans down and engages in your life. And she looked, Naomi looks at her daughters-in-law and says, I want you to experience that, which is interesting. We don't know what their faith status is, but she says, I want my God from where I come from. I want him to get involved in your life and to come down low to meet your needs. And then makes the amazing statement to the daughters-in-laws and says, the way you have done that for us. I think there's a spiritual life going on in Ruth and Orpah. We don't know all that it was, but God's clearly at work because she compares what she's praying for the Lord to do in these two daughters-in-law's lives for what God has done for them and will do for them. And she prays that blessing upon them. What an incredible moment. And so all of a sudden, she says to her daughters-in-law, I grant you a release. I know we're family, but you know what? Here's the situation. Why don't you go back to your mother's house? Go home, because I'm headed back to Israel. I'm going back. That's not your people. That's not where you are. That's not your God. I absolve you from any commitment you feel like you have to me. 
go home to your mom, rest, look for another husband. Life has dealt you a terrible blow. Go look for another husband. You're gonna be okay. I'm going back, but I'm going back by myself. And all of a sudden there's weeping as these two daughters-in-law are weeping with their their mother-in-law. Life has been difficult. It's been dark. It's been painful. And there is a change of life coming. Look at how they respond. Look down at verse 10 if you would. And they, Orpah and Ruth, said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Start giving them a whole bunch of reasons. You don't need to go with me. Let me tell you why you shouldn't go with me. So all of a sudden they begin. Turn back, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. What a moment. Naomi says, no, 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 no. Maybe she would have said, thank you for coming with me, but I don't even hear that. I'm thinking that maybe Naomi wants a release. You know what? You are a reminder of pain upon pain upon pain. So you just stay here. Like, no, 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 we're going to go with you. And you see all the things that she says? No, 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 I don't, I, don't, I don't have a husband. I'm past childbearing years. And even if I were to get a husband tonight and get pregnant tonight and produce more sons that you could marry them, are you going to actually wait around for them to be grown up enough for you to marry them? No. I think part of it, we see her come back to that, you're going to want to have children. And she says, I know the pain of losing children. And I want you to go have them. So they lifted up their voices and wept. Because we've got a moment in time now where all of life is about to change. See, the trauma isn't over. They've been through a lot of trauma. But now, the three of these women have made it through the toughest things that life can throw at them. And now, they're at a moment in time where things are about to change again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, let's not be harsh with Orpah. This isn't a character flaw. She said, no, I'm with you. I'm going to go with you. And Naomi said, no, 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 no. She actually honored Naomi's wishes. Matter of fact, we see three times in verse 11 and and 12 and 15, we see her tell, tell the daughters three times, leave, go home. Orpah says, okay, we don't need, that doesn't represent poorly on her at all. But recognize that Ruth does a different decision, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth chooses to stay, and that's to her credit. Nothing against Orpah, but this is a shocking decision, right? Because everything in her life, everything she's ever known is changing. She's going to leave her land, which is what this family did 10 years earlier. She's now going to leave her land and go to a foreign land. She's leaving the God she had known, although she got introduced to Yahweh from this family. She's leaving that God, that system, those people, her extended family, her support system, every way she knew how to make life work. She's leaving that behind, and now she's going to another land. See, this is a shocking 
thing. Not to mention, she's a young woman, she's a widow. She's, what is she going to do? How will she care for herself? How will she take care of her mother-in-law? Those are all questions. And you recognize that Ruth was not guided by those questions. She was guided by a couple of convictions. And one of these convictions, we see James pick this up in his epistle in the New Testament. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As Ruth understands that this widow in affliction is in a tough place and who is going to intervene, who is going to care for, who's going to help protect and provide and do life with, and and Ruth raised her hand and said, me. And when Naomi said no, she said, no, 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 I'm all in. Matter of fact, you want to know how she said it? She said it this way. Look with me down uh, at verse 15. And she said, see, Naomi said, see, Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods, return after her. Ruth, take a hint. Orpah left. That's what I want you to do. Why don't you leave and go back to your gods and to your people and leave me alone? I added that last part. Verse 16, but Ruth said, now I got, let's just pause for one second. If we're following the narrative of this, this is a verse that people love to have their weddings. And people come to me like, hey, can we do this? This is what I want the wedding after. And I tell them the same thing. As long as you're clear, this is between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, yes, we can use this. Now, it speaks of incredible commitment, an incredible devotion, a selflessness, and a sacrifice. And if that's what you want the marriage covenant to look like, then I'm going to say like this mother-in-law and daughter-in-law had. That's fine. But listen to these words that Ruth says. Verse 16, But Ruth said to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Naomi, your people are going to be my people and your God, my God. And Naomi, where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Man, what a commitment. You want to talk about a woman of character, here's where you see her, stepping up and saying, look, 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 if I paraphrase a little bit more, Naomi, we're not going to do this anymore. Quit urging me. Quit trying to tell me to leave from following you. I'm all in. I've got no other plan. This is my plan. I'm going to live this vow out. Matter of fact, recognize, she gets to the end of it and she said, matter of fact, this is not only my vow, but I call upon your God to judge me if I break this vow. You want to talk about a woman of incredible character. Look at who she is. And all of a sudden, she's moved into this lifelong decision. I will live this out every day of my life moving forward. What a moment. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined. Really, Naomi? You saw that, right? When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi stopped talking. She said no more. Okay, this is going to be life moving forward from this point forward. What a moment. We left with four. We lost three. We added two. We're going back. We try to release two. One releases. One stays. And so we got two headed back. One who is headed back to Bethlehem, where her family was from. Local royalty. Everybody would have known them. And now these two, her Moabite daughter-in-law, joins her on the path. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. They're back at the house of bread. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, let's just stop for a second. 
Think with me about when you've seen pictures of presidents when they enter presidential office versus when they leave presidential office, right? The years take their toll. And that's a four-year term. This has been 10 years. This is hard. This has been harsh. Life has taken its toll. And I got to say, if you've ever been the one that's been gossiped or slandered about, when you walk into a room and you hear the whispers, you know what this feels like. Naomi comes home. She's got Ruth. Nobody knows Ruth. Ruth came into her life when she was in Moab. So it's Ruth and Naomi, and in they walk, and everybody's sitting there like, is that, is that Naomi? I mean, that kind of looks like Naomi. Man, the years haven't been easy on her, right? And the answer is no, they haven't. And look at what Naomi does with it. Because when that happens, she said to them, verse 20, do not call me Naomi. Remember what I told you the name Naomi meant? Joyful or pleasant? No, no, no. Don't you dare call me Naomi. Matter of fact, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. See, Mara means bitter. She looks up and she said, if a name means anything, and my name means pleasant or full of joy or joyful, that's not my name anymore. That's not my life. I've left that life behind. I have a new identity that I'm living in. My new identity, bitterness. Call me Mara. That is much more appropriate. And you see who she blames? If you look back at that scripture, see what she said? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. If you've ever been with us, when we do the the Hebrew names of God, and we've talked about the different names, see the the name, or maybe you know the song El Shaddai, that word Almighty is the Hebrew name Shaddai. It speaks of his power and his strength and and how uh, sovereign he is. And she looks around and she said, no, 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 don't call me pleasant. I am anything but pleasant. You call me Mara, for the Lord has made me bitter. You call me Mara because the Almighty has done this for me. And this is where it really hits us, right? You know, her mindset, her thinking is this. God is sovereign, God is powerful, and he is a pretty good God, but he's not a great God because if he's a great God, he wouldn't have allowed that into my life. So he's a pretty good God. And what really irks me is I'm bitter because he could have intervened in my pain and in my circumstances and suffering, and he didn't. See where the bitterness takes in? God, where were you that day? God, what are you doing? You think, I want to think you're good, but you allowed this? How can I reconcile that you, a good God, you're the Almighty, you could have stopped this and you chose not to? See, you catching her emotion now? I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full. What did she have? A husband and two boys. I went away full, which is interesting, because the reality is they were in famine. They weren't full. They didn't have any food. They went to go find food. I went away full, and I came back empty. Meaning, why, why empty? Because she didn't have her husband. She didn't have her two boys. I've got to imagine if you're Ruth, you're like, hello, I'm with you. Everybody hadn't left you. I'm still by your side. I'm all in with you. I just made the vow to you and to your God and to your people. I'm all in. 
I invite his judgment on me if I ever break this vow. But you know, sometimes when we're hurting, we're not very reasonable. We don't really think through things very well. And let me say, when we're going through crisis and trauma isn't the time to shape our theology because it had, trauma has an incredible way of reshaping our theology and emotions drive that train. But I think she looks around and she says, what is going on? You see, what, what she understands is she knows the how God has worked, but she doesn't understand the why. And we all live in that, right? I see what God has done or allowed, but I don't understand why he's doing that. And the moment I say I don't understand the why and I don't trust him, what I say is, you did this to me. And that's where she is, is in these words all of a sudden, it's he did this way for me. The end of verse 21, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty brought calamity upon me? Now it's not only that he let it happen, it's that he did it. Man, she is hurting. She is hurting at an incredible level. And if you know pain, capital T trauma, little t, it, it's all the same. I got to tell you, we go through those difficult times in our lives. I'll share one season for, uh, with you that was in our world. In 2014, uh, we'd been at Grace Church for a long time and, and talking with our leadership and specifically uh, Tom Rogers, it, the words were, it's time for Lance to, to step out and, and, and lead a church. And so we took this step of faith, and we took this step of faith, and we moved uh, back to where all our family lived. It seemed like it's, it's going to be perfect, right? And God worked in it. And so hear me say that. God worked in it, and I have a better understanding now of what was going on. But man, that first year was terrible for us. Six months I would describe as awful. The next three months I would describe as improving, and they were only terrible at that point. But month 10, it seemed like things kind of got a little bit better. But you know, those first nine months, we couldn't sell a house here and we couldn't for a long time. That house was on the market for 51 weeks here. Both of our cars were hit by strangers that we didn't have their insurance information. The house we had there had so many issues, we kept spending more and more money on what felt like the money pit, right? Because that's happening. I got attacked and slandered by a group of people involved in the leadership of the church that accused me of all kinds of things and then they left and I'm thinking, that's not me. Things were so hard. I remember looking at my son as we were driving. He was about to be a freshman in high school and my son looked at me and said this, Dad, I think we heard God wrong on this one. Hard to argue, son. Call me Mara, right? <laughs> and I remember, of course, because I'm, you know, I'm the dad and the pastor, I give a Bible answer to him to help correct that, even if I don't really feel it, right? So I go through that, and I'm left with the fact of, God, I took, God, I took a step of faith. And even if it was the wrong decision, my heart was, I feel like you're calling me to this and I want to step into this. I want to honor you in this. Where are you in this? Man, it hurt. It was a painful season for us. And yet God was at work and I can see how he's bringing things about. And so I can look back, but you're, when you're in the middle of it, it's like, you're, you're a good God. You're not a great God because this. 
I don't know what you would put there, but you probably have something that you would put there. Because when life seems like it's in balance, and then there's this inciting incident that comes into play that disrupts the balance. So often our desire is to go backwards to the balance as opposed to looking at the inciting incident and saying, God, you're at work and you're going to do something that's going to propel me forward in my growth. Naomi's not there yet. And a lot of us in this room aren't there yet. And that's okay. Because the reality is when we come and we start looking at all that is going on in this verse, verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, we're still not saying her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabite, it's Naomi and Ruth the Moabite returned to the country from Mo- of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Do you hear the hope? They left because of famine. They've heard the famine's over. They're coming home. They're returning to the house of bread. They're returning to God in this moment. And the, the hint for us is harvest is here. Harvest is here. I think Larry Crabb, cap, uh, Larry Crabb captures something that's really, really solid when he talks with us about this. And if you think with me, he talks about the fact that when we start walking with the Lord, our hope is, Lord, I want what you want for me. I want to know you. I want you. And it's this great, big, huge, overwhelming plan. And it feels too big. And so what we do is we say, God, give me a smaller plan. Give me one I can manage. Give me something with contentment that's enough. God, if your plan on a scale of one to 10 is actually an 11, give me like a four. I'll just settle in for a four. That's enough for me. And what happens is we cease to want what God wants for us. And we settle into a life that is less than what God wants to do for us. And if God loves us, and he does, then the best thing he can do for us is to shatter that dream so that we're free to pursue him again at a deeper level. And all of a sudden, what we can see is maybe life doesn't need to be about getting back to normal because getting back to normal would have been this when she lost everything instead of trusting that what God wanted to do was this. Because elsewhere in Isaiah, we read this, behold, I'm doing a new thing. If I can personalize it, Naomi, I'm doing a new thing. It springs forth. Don't you perceive it? Lance in Covington, Lance, I'm doing a new thing and it's springing forth. Do you not perceive it? And I'm like, and Naomi's like, and you're like, Lord, I, I don't know that I want the new thing. I want to go back to the old thing. And he said, but you don't get it. I'm making a way in the wilderness and I'm making rivers in the desert. And you and I are like, you can't put a river in a desert. That changes the definition of desert. And God says, that's what I do. In the middle of a heartache, I put rivers in deserts. And you are thinking, well, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, and I get that makes sense, but that's not trusting me. I don't want you to go light your own fire. I want you to stay in here and trust me in this. Remember the words of story that I shared with you earlier? Life is relatively in balance. But then there's an event. And then we want to restore balance. We want to go backwards. And then our expectations begin to crash into uncooperative circumstances. Dig deeper. We've got scarce resources. We can't make it work on our own. Then we have to make difficult decisions. And then we face risky actions. Anybody remember where he ended? And then ultimately you discover truth. When all of that is done, 
you're going to discover truth. What's the truth? If we come out, God leads us out of every famine, and he leads us back into harvest every time. That's who he is. But what happens in those moments is we think, well, I feel like Moab's a pretty good place. And God wants to call us out of our Moabs. And we can say, well, circumstances drove us to Moab. And hear me say this, because circumstances so often will change our theology. Let's be really crystal clear. We want our theology to help us understand our circumstances, not the other way around. Circumstances do not get to tell us what truth is. Here's a few. Circumstances do not discredit God's character. Whatever you're facing in this world today, it is not impinging on God's character at all. He remains who he is, and it is a good God who loves you and cares for you and is at work to bring about our good. That is always true. What else is always true is circumstances do not nullify God's promises. Well, God said he was going to provide for me, but now we're in a famine, so I guess he really did not, I guess he didn't really mean it. Circumstances do not nullify God's promise. We may have to look for, God, how are you going to put a river in a desert? And we don't know the answer to that. But we know that he does it because he tells us he does it. And he wants to do something new. Thirdly, circumstances do not restrain God's power. God is not held hostage by whatever you're facing. Whatever promises he's made, his character is true, his promises are true, and he has the power to bring it out about, no matter what your circumstances are, because he's God and we're not. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stonelight Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.